Corinthians chapter 16. If you're joining live with us, we pray the Lord has given you or helping you feel better. We have many who are not here this morning, and as I was staying, as I was saying, uh, we certainly pray that the Lord heals you. But we miss you, and uh, we certainly feel your absence here and during Sunday school and and uh, the services. And um, here in our Roman series, chapter sixteen, the topic he's going to talk about is the church community how we really rely on each other, not only the presence of one another, but um, the prayers and the fellowship of each other, what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ to other brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. So chapter 16 is the last chapter of Romans, this beautiful opus, some argue is the the one of the best books of the Bible. We know it's inspired by God. And it just, it's a beautiful woven tapestry of doctrine and not just doctrine, just not just theology, but practical living uh, or Christian life. And in chapter 16, we start to see him giving his for, for, uh, farewells. Uh, verses one and two, we kind of dissect chapter 16 this way chapters or verses 1 through 2 is the commendation of the brothers and the sisters and verses 3 through 16 we see greetings that Paul uh, is sending greetings to particular members of the church of Rome there and uh, and to membership in general and then verse 17 through 20 of chapter 16 is just a, a small short warning to be able to discern the teachers uh, who are there just, uh, they're not family members, they're not fellow laborers, they're not co-workers in the work of Christ. And then at the very end, 20, verses 21 through 27, at the very end, we, we have a final summary of the beautiful righteousness of God that is distributed through the gospel. And the gospel of God is the righteousness of God, which is provided for us, and how it's beautiful and in the wisdom of God. And that's what really has been the theme of all of the Romans. So the final summary in chapter 16 gives us the, the overall theme. It, it just ends it well, ends the letter well. All right, so verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. So this, in this first verse, we see this commend, how Paul is commending unto you, Phoebe, our sister. And so that in verse two, it also says that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a secure of many and of myself also. So in essence, what is Paul doing? Paul is sending a letter with recommendation of Phoebe. Now, this is what we would call a church letter that we have today. We still practice this same thing today. Uh, 
It's a commendation letter. It's a letter of recommendation to other churches as Paul had given this recommendation of Phoebe. Now, these letters were between churches. We see many instances of this. Uh, we know that when you, when you come and you want to be a member of one of the Lord's churches, uh, if you're not saved, you need to be baptized and receive scriptural baptism. Before you can become a member of any of the Lord's churches, you have to have scriptural baptism. And then after that, let's say you have scriptural baptism. Let's say you're saved here and then you move to Missouri and you want to join a church in Missouri of like faith and like order. Well, you know, you find a church there and then you say, well, I have, I have had scriptural baptism at Metathorpe Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. And then you want to come and join that fellowship over there, that membership. You would ask to be received on promise of a letter. Uh, many times we do promise of a letter or a statement of faith. If we cannot, for whatever reason, if we can't contact the church that you were scripturally baptized, or maybe that church has gone in the air since you were baptized, there, there's a lot of reasons why we wouldn't even request a letter from another church. Uh, and those are the reasons. I mean, either they're out of existence or uh, maybe that church is no that church isn't what it once was. It's not the pillar of the ground and truth that it once was. But you know you have scriptural baptism because at the time that you that that you were baptized, the church had all of the requirements. It had the authority uh, to baptize you. So you know you had scriptural baptism. Well, then we would request a letter, and that's where this letter comes in. Now, one of the things we do not see, um, unfortunately, we we see it today in many. Uh, cases, some people, some church members will have their letter, uh, they'll have a letter of recommendation kind of locked in a trunk in their house somewhere. Uh, we do not possess our letters. I mean, it, it, it's kind of gone beyond the even the meaning of a letter. Uh, the reason that we would send for a letter is we want to know what type of church member you were, where you came from. And so that's the letter of recommendation or the letter of commendation. If you were a disciplined a member of another church and you were seeking refuge rather than dealing with the issues of that old church membership, uh, then and you're trying to seek refuge in another Baptist church, well, you don't want that church to be contacting your old church, you know. But so, so that way we do due diligence here. And think about it. If you're fleeing from another church, trying to escape discipline or whatever, and you're in the wrong, and then you go and you've not repented of that sin before that, that assembly, and you're trying to join another church, well, the pastor of that flock is also a guard of that flock to make sure that there's nothing wicked or be, you know, the pastor must do due diligence to make sure there's nothing that gets entered into this assembly that he's the under shepherd of that could pollute or that could, uh, you know, disrupt the current membership. So that is where these letters really come in. It's not just a matter of, oh, they did it, so we need to do it. It's also a matter of due diligence that Paul had sent this letter with Phoebe of recommendation. Receive her. Receive her. I, I recommend her. Now, if, like I said, a letter cannot be um, obtained, we would do a statement of faith 
that you have had received scriptural baptism, that you are saved, you receive believer's baptism, scriptural baptism, and all of the tenets of baptism. I need to, uh, I'll probably do another lesson on baptism. Uh, it probably doesn't make sense for me to wait till we have baptisms to preach on baptism uh, because there's so much confusion with baptism. Uh, you know, we know that scriptural baptism, I didn't mean to, to teach on this, but we all know that it must be the proper mode. It must be uh, immersion underwater. It's not sprinkling. It must be the proper design. It has to picture the death, the burial, the resurrection. There's no special graces in baptism. There's no extra spirit that happens in baptism. Uh, it's just a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. There must be the right administer uh, that we know that God gives authority uh, to John the Baptist in the New Testament. Jesus had to go out of his way to seek John the Baptist. He just couldn't be baptized by anyone. God only gave the authority to one person, John the Baptist. And then when Jesus ascended, he said, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore go, during the Great Commission, he told them to make disciples, baptize, and do all the ordinances of the, and who was he charging it to? He was charging it to his church. And so his church, Jesus has given authority to his kind of church, his church, whom he died for, whom he is the head of, he, the one that he founded upon this rock, and that the gates of hell should not prevail against it. So only his assembly has the authority to baptize. Otherwise, anybody uh, could say that they have the authority to baptize. And so uh, it must be the right mode, the right, and it must be the right candidate. It must be someone who's been saved, uh, someone who is a believer. So it can't be an infant or anything like that. You never see anybody but believers being baptized in the Word of God. Nobody else. And so when you start mixing up the design and the mode, uh, as we know, the Catholic Church, the Protestants, the, those who are uh, giving extra grace to baptism, well, if you're doing that, if you're not seeing that as a picture only, and you're ascribing some kind of forgiveness of sins to being plunged, well, then, yeah, I'm gonna, I, want my, I want all my children to be baptized. You know, I, I mean, why wouldn't you want your baby to be baptized if that were true? But it's not true. There is no special graces in baptism. We know from the word of God that it is by grace through faith are you saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Any part of salvation, if you were to be able to brag about, you can already discount it. It must not be a true element of salvation. So, we understand from the Bible that we get certain behaviors and certain things which we still practice in the Lord's church uh, with a reason. There's reasons why we still practice what we practice uh, from the Word of God. And so this is definitely one of those that, and you know, this is what I love about going through the books of the Bible, because some things that you would typically maybe have in your Bible reading, you may read just really quick by and get to the main subject and just concentrate on the main subject. But here we can slow down and kind of look at these words and dissect them. So he commends unto them Phoebe, chapter 16, verse 1, and notice what he calls her. He calls her our sister. 
So we see the element of the family orientation. You know, we call each other brother and sister. Well, do you have a good reason to tell me why? Why do we call each other brother and sister? And, well, through the word of God, we see that we all have the same father. We all have God the Father through Jesus Christ. We're all in the family of God. We're all members. And the Paul references us as brothers and sisters. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. In Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So we get the family orientation of Christianity. Now, like I said, the overall uh, point here we're going to be looking at is this idea of church community, of Christian community. Of we are in a family-oriented relationship as Christians. We are all brothers and sisters. But notice this, he says, which is a servant? Now, I don't know how many of you all have heard this question brought up, but that word servant in the Greek is diokonos. Diokonos. That same word is translated deacon. Now, a lot of people will say, ah, there's deaconesses, because it says Phoebe is a servant, is a deacon, because it's the same Greek word that we will find in, and we're actually going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Actually, uh, keep your fingers there and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First of all, I do not believe that the Bible teaches that there are female deacons. I do not believe that there is anything, any such thing as a, a deaconess from the Word of God. And I'll, let me show you why. This is why, this is how you can know. 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if it's not deacon, what does it mean there? So look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. So he had just talked about the qualifications of a pastor, a bishop. In verse 8, he starts to talk about the deacons. Likewise, must the deacons, it's the same Greek word, diokonos, be grave, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slander, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. All right, so there's a couple of things that we want to look at. First of all, when they use the word diokonos in Romans chapter 16 to describe Phoebe, it is in the feminine noun. It's a feminine noun. It is a servant. Both words mean servant. 
It means service, okay? Diokonos. Now, how would you be able to know it's talking about the office of a deacon versus just a servant? When is it talking about just someone who serves versus someone who is an actual official church deacon? Well, it tells you in the context. It modifies that word. We read it right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when he talks about the office of a deacon. Verse 10, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives, and so a lot of the Greek theologians and things like that, they'll say, um, oh, it's that, that must there is not there in the original Greek. It's italicized in the English here. Even wives, grave, not slander, sober, faithful in all things. So they'll say, oh, there must be women deacons that can be allowed because it's not talking about the men's wives here. It's talking about women. So just like the men who are deacons, the women deacons must be grave, not slander, sober, faithful. That's all fine, but verse 12 if there was any doubt, it tells you exactly who it was talking about in verse 11. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. That, I think that puts the nail right there in the coffin that the office of the deacons are to be men, ruling their children and their own house as well. Because in verse 12, it is definitively talking about how the, the deacons' wives are to behave. Now, just like a pastorship, uh, it's a ministry. And I solely and wholly believe that when the Lord calls into the ministry a pastor, he is also calling into the ministry the wife too. I mean, in one way or another, the, wife, the wife's not a pastor, but she's in the ministry with the pastor. And just like with the deacons. Uh, and when the, the Lord calls into those who are a church needs to officiate uh, an actual office of the deacon, the wife is also brought into the same ministry as the husband. And verse 13, for they have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So that word Diokonos is also used all throughout the word of God, meaning servant or minister. It's used in Romans 15, 8. Jesus is called a diokonos, and it's translated as minister. Romans 15, 8 says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Now, that word diokonos is used there to describe Jesus, a minister to the circumcision. Does that mean that Jesus was a deacon? He was a servant. The word means servant. The same word is used in Matthew 22, 13 to describe the king's servants. Matthew 22, 13 said, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, Cast them in the outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in that sense, it's servants. It's used in Matthew 23, 11 as one Christian to another Christian. In John 2, 5, it is used as servants of a household 
And in Romans 13, 4, it is used as government officials. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. So now it's talking about government servants. It's used as Christ's ministers, and it's also used as Satan's ministers in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen, 15, Diokonos. So it's obvious from the word of God that you have to, when it's talking about the office of a deacon, the one that you are ordained to be, it must be defined that way in the context in which it has been here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the office of the deacon, but it's not defined in Romans chapter 16 when it talks about Phoebe. It isn't. There is no office of the deacon here. There's no office of a servant. Phoebe was a highly regarded and beautiful saint and a beautiful servant that, that Paul is highly recommending and Paul thought the world of in her service to the Lord. And that should never be diminished or thought less of, but it should be praised when the Lord uses, I mean, and it's all women are servants, or to be servants. They're ready to, to, to serve in the church. And um, so many ways the Lord uses our women in the church and the things that you don't notice and the things that you do notice. But there's always a faithful woman serving in the body, and it's beautiful. And Paul is bringing this out to light. Here's another chapter if you ever hear of anybody who says, well, Paul had a negative outlook towards women. That's why he wrote Timothy. That's why he wrote Titus. Because remember, that's where we get that the women are to learn in subjection. They're not to be pastors and not to have leadership over the man. That was all Paul's writing. So they're going to say, oh, you know, that was Paul. He just, he had a negative outlook towards women. It, in this chapter, he especially does not. That's the opposite is true. We see him have a high uh, uh, disposition towards women in this chapter. Um, which, by the way, Southern Baptist churches, not all of them, but some of them have deaconesses. Um, I don't know how many there are that do, but they will take this. Now, the problem is, is when you start defining women deaconesses, then it's not, it's a slippery slope towards defining bishops or pastors can now be women too. And so, you know, if, if a woman can be a servant of the church ordained, now we know from Acts chapter, I didn't plan on spending the whole time here, but let's, let's stay here. Acts chapter 6 is where we have the ordination of the deacons. Acts chapter 6. Not only do we have the qualification of the deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their wives were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men, 
of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and uh, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So there's the ordination of the deaconship. That's where we have the practice of ordination. And we see that it's the church which ordains the deacons. It's not a, an, it's not a group or an organization. It's not a convention. Um, the same thing with missionaries. We see the church ordain missionaries and send Paul and Barnabas out of the church of Antioch. So we see that everything's local to the church. There's not these outside influences. Uh, each church is autonomous. That means that we all are self-governed and we all have Christ as our head. Uh, but we're all self-governed. Now, um, verse 2 of Romans chapter 16 says that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a secure of many and of myself also. And that word secure, it's actually throughout the word of God a couple times. It's translated in English as secure, but it, there's different Greek backings for that word. Uh, the secure here he's talking about is a patroness, someone who's a patron or the caring for others. It's almost the same idea as an executive assistant. Um, someone who is a coordinator. You know, I was thinking um, of this when we had the wedding on Saturday, how a lot of that wedding was the, the schedule was developed and executed by Mariana and Alex, and they didn't have a proper coordinator. So they didn't have someone who was making sure people were in the right places at the right time, and people were supplied the things that they needed to be supplied. And that's, in a lot of the ways, that's what this secure uh, verse 2 is implying, is that Phoebe was a secure. She was almost like a coordinator, uh, an executive assistance for the affairs of Paul and the church. And how wonderful it is that, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing when, when I call a church member and they've received a card from Metathorpe Baptist Church. And I had, we didn't talk about that as a church body, but somebody has taken on the responsibility and the role. And we know Sister Esther right now does that. She sends cards. She sends get well cards. She, she sends the flowers. She does things. And, and other women do other things that are behind the scenes. And there's a lot of just organization within the church that we don't see. And, but it's there. It has to be there. And how blessed we are that it is there. That someone is thinking of these things and doing these things. And so I, I think of Phoebe in that way. 
I mean, she is bringing this letter from Corinth. She was a member of the church of Centuri. That's what it said at the end of verse 1. Uh, Centuri was about nine miles away from Corinth. Both were in Achaia, southern Greece. Centuria was a port town, and Corinth was on the other end of this isthmus. It was like today there was a canal that separates northern Greece from southern Greece. Uh, back then there wasn't. Um, so Centuri is on this side and Corinth is on this side. Paul is writing the letter to the Romans from Corinth. And so he sends this letter through Phoebe. And so the Phoebe is to be received by the church there. And so verse 2, he is highly recommended. He's written this letter of accommodation, calls her, her our sister in verse 16, calls her a servant. She is a uh, diokonos. She is highly, and you know, as we keep going, I'm just looking to see if we have a lot of time to keep going, but uh, let us keep going until, until we can't. But we see this role today served in our churches, and we praise the Lord for the women who do these things. We praise the Lord because they're needed, and the Lord knows that we need them. And how many things, and um, I know that just as a, a married man, how many things get done by April that, that I don't think to do, that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, that she's in my life, that things that get done that she does and but even more so in the churches that and people look at our type of churches and say oh you oppress women you suppress them and, and everything and you believe that God uh, has not made them equal and you know my thing is is they're equal but different God has given them different roles are they sinners? Yes. Are we sinners? Yes. Do we both need to be saved by grace? Yes. But God has made man and woman in a way where we complement one another, when we're all achieving the roles that God has given us to do. And so for, in that case, you know, to think that serving your role as God has designed you to do is some kind of oppression, that's just wrong. It's wrong for a woman to think that of herself, and it's wrong for anybody to accuse a woman of doing that, of oppressing who they are and saying that they're not rising above and uh, becoming the activists that they need to be and, and this and that and everything else. Now, you know what? Uh, whether I stand, whether I fall, I am the Lord. Everything I, every, everything I do is to the Lord. I am the Lord's is what I meant. I am the Lord. So that's who approval I'm looking for. <laughs> I, I love you, but I'm not looking for your approval. I'm, I'm looking for the Lord's approval. And so, um, anyway, so never do we see any kind of oppression of women, neither do we see a negative outlook of Paul towards women, even though he wrote Titus, and he wrote Timothy, and he wrote Corinthians, and we see all the things that the women are to do to be subjective and, and learning, and even in the, the, uh, the relationship of the marriage, they're supposed to be submissive, but we see Paul having a, a remarkable attitudes towards the women who are in the ministry with him in Romans chapter 16. Because he's verse 3, he talks about Priscilla and Aquila. 
my helpers in Christ Jesus. Now, Priscilla and Aquila were a married couple, and they were acquaintances of Paul. And both him and Luke speak about Priscilla and Aquila a whole lot. Um, they are fellow tent makers. They come on the scene uh, when we see Paul in Acts chapter 18. He's there alone in Corinth. If you remember Timothy uh, and Silas and were up and they were uh, delivering the, the letter to Thessalonica, uh, to Upper Macedonia, to the churches there in Macedonia, and they left Paul there in Corinth. And so uh, Paul's alone. And we see in Acts him kind of discouraged a little bit that he's alone, been suffering persecution. And at the same time, uh, Claudius Caesar expels all of the Jews from Rome because there had been an uprise at that time and of the Christians and the Jews, and there had been some uh, fighting in Rome. Well, the Caesar said, enough of this. Kick them all out. I want harmony in Rome. And so Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila were one of the Jews who were expelled from Rome. And where'd they go? Lo and behold, they go to Corinth and meet Paul. I mean, that's all orchestrated by God, isn't it? So Priscilla and Aquila are there. They come to Corinth. They encourage Paul. Just a beautiful friendship in the Lord is made there. They love each other. And they end up continuing to follow Paul in his missionary endeavors and his journey all the way to Ephesus. And so in Ephesus, Paul leaves them there and with Timothy as well. Paul leaves them in Ephesus. But at Ephesus, if you all remember, when Paul's there, there's this riot that breaks out at Ephesus. And all the streets are in an uproar. And Ephesus is huge. All the people, all the citizens of Ephesus, they're, they're ready to riot, and they don't know why. It's just a mindless riot. And they're saying, hey, let's do this. So they all meet in the theater, the theater, this huge semicircle place that they all went. And Paul was just about to go out there, but we, I think Priscilla and Aquila, it said that believers withheld Paul from going out there. And so, rather, they drug out other uh, Christians out into the theater. But finally, they disbanded. So, we know that Priscilla and Aquila in verse 4 and verse 3 are very enriched in the ministry of Paul. They're very enriched in the ministry of the young church, too, in the early church. They were all fellow servants and fellow co-workers. And Paul mentions them here. And he mentions them in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Timothy, and they're brought up by Luke in Acts chapter 18, and in, uh, also in Acts, they are the ones who instructed Apollos. Uh, um, you know, y'all know Apollos, a major evangelist in the first century, and they explained to Apollos a more perfect way. Uh, and that's in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. Uh, also, Aquila is thought to be one of the original 70 disciples of Luke chapter 10. The Lord sends out two by two. So when we look at this, um, we're not going to be able to finish this now, but here's the jest and something I want you to see in verses 3 through 10. Uh is the 
or actually throughout the, the rest of it, notice how many times Paul uses in Christ Jesus and in the Lord. These people were closer than friends. They were family to Paul. We all have the same, they have the same father secured in Christ. Look with me, and then, then we'll stop for this morning. In chapter 16, look how many times he references somebody who is in the Lord with him or in Christ. Verse 2 says, receive her in the Lord as become a saints. In verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 7, uh, he says, a salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Verse 8, greet Amplis, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. Verse 10, salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Verse 11, salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Verse 12 says it twice. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And down at, and finally, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. It's a beautiful chapter, and there are some subtleties in it, and there are some things we want to look back and look at, but we, honestly, we see the kinsmanship that we all have together in the Lord, don't we? How we're all fellow laborers, we're all fellow workers, but we're family. And that's really Romans chapter 16, more than any other place. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of places that it teaches about our family, but we are. We're family in the Lord. And um, as, as something we take for granted, especially if you've been saved and in a Baptist church your whole life, it's something you've never even thought of. Why do I say this? Why, do, why am I calling him my brother? Why am I calling her my sister? What's our relationship? But we're to be even closer than our friends. We're to be honestly related in this way. And this is the Christian community because we're all in Christ. We all have the same Father. and We all have been saved by our same Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this study which we've seen. And Father, we pray your blessings upon the remainder of the day. Lord, we ask you to forgive us of our sins. And we know, Father, we know that they are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you, Lord, for the ransom and your mercy. I pray for your words to be effectual today. Pray for those who are sick and cannot be here this morning to be with them in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen.